A few, a few weeks ago, I had uh, some of my friends from uni up for the weekend. So once uh, a year, I try to get these group of guys who I uh, met at uni, um, which I was reminded this year was 20 years ago, which means I'm now really old. Um, uh, 20 years ago, I met these guys, and we tried to every year just get together for a weekend uh, and spend some time uh, just hanging out. But, but this weekend, this year, was a bit different. And it was a bit different because um, you, might, you might have heard about it, this thing called COVID happened, right? Um, uh, and that meant that I actually hadn't seen them for over three years. So it'd been over three years since we'd, we'd got together. Uh, and in that time, um, some, more, some more children had been born. Uh, and so now what used to be me inviting six friends up was me inviting six friends and their six children um, up. So, so we ended up with my six friends from uni, their six kids uh, coming up. So with, with my family, that's a house of 18 um, for, for the weekend. That, that was where we were. Uh, and so it came to the week before they were due to be arriving. And I suddenly realized that if I was going to have anywhere for these guys to sleep, then I was going to have to do something about the top floor of our house. Because the top floor of our house for a, a very, very long time had been used primarily as a dumping ground. Now, I don't know what your house is like, but lots of people, it's not just us, has a, have a room where they just dump stuff and close the door and pretend it's not there. Now, we, we didn't just have a room. We had an entire floor of our house that we had devoted to this singular purpose. This is, this is where we store stuff. But we're going to need these rooms because they were going to sleep in it. So, so Sarah and I set about trying to, trying to clear it up. It started with me going up there and going, right, I'm just going to do this. They're my friends. It should be me that does this tidying. And so I went upstairs and I was like, right, I'm going to sort out this top room. But the problem was... I couldn't distinguish in the room between what was rubbish, <laughs> what was play-out Hartlepool stuff, and what was craft equipment. To me, they all look identical. I was like, are these sombreros rubbish, or are they play-out Hartlepool equipment? Um, are these egg boxes meant to be recycling, or are they craft, or are they play-out Hartlepool? They could be any of those three categories. I have absolutely no idea. So, so I was quickly defeated by the prospect of tidying the top of my house for these people coming to stay. Uh, and so as, as the week went on, um, it would be fair to say that Sarah and I went through the full range of emotions about their <laughs> visit. So as the week started, I was so excited about them coming. I was like, it hasn't been for ages. It's going to be so great. I love hanging out with those guys. And then by like a few days before... I was, I was starting to get a little bit stressed about the state of our house and were we ever going to get this house ready. Uh, and then as it got a bit closer to that point, I started wondering, do I even like those guys? <laughs> like, like are they, do I actually want them to come and visit? Um, and, uh, and then by the end, I was debating pursuing the life of a hermit and going and living in a life surrounded by chickens and, uh, you know, no technology. That, that, was, that was where we went uh, over the course of th that week. But, but by the Saturday, when they, when they all locked up, um, Sarah mainly had done a great job, um, uh, and the house was ready for them. I, and I just had a, an absolutely great weekend with those guys. I, I love hanging out with those guys. We get to do um, 
we, we kind of revert back to type, which means that we talk about like politics and putting the world right and things that I don't actually know anything about anymore, but I used to 20 years ago. Um, and so, so we chat about that sort of stuff and I get to meet their children um, for the, the first time. And we basically just sit around, chat, we relive old experiences from uni, like, oh, do you remember that time where we got that guy to smoke his shoelaces? And like, <laughs> we, you know, we just, we just, we, we relive our university past um, and it's great and I, and I love it. Now, that right there is the reality of any relationships with other people. Now, not the smoking shoelaces bit, but, but the rest of it, like that's just what relationships with, with people look like. In, in reality, relationships with other people are a bit of a hassle. Like, they, they, they require a bit of work. They can be a little bit stressful. But they have the ability to bring joy like almost nothing else. They have the ability to bring a level of joy that almost nothing else in all of existence can. You will know yourself the joy you experience from catching up with old friends. You'll know how great it can feel and how much you can look forward to maybe catching up with um, family who've moved away over Christmas. Oh, at Christmas, we're going to get back together. It's going to be so great. We look forward to that day. Yeah, there's hassle, but you know the joy of that. You know the excitement that comes with that. You'll know the joy that maybe you find from hanging out for an evening with guys from church or with guys from a, a club or whatever it is. You'll, you'll know it. You'll know there's joy to be found in that. And so far in this series on joy, we have looked at the joy that Paul who was the guy who wrote this bit of the Bible, he found in partnering with other Christians. So doing things with other Christians. We've also also heard about the joy he found in working hard for the good of other Christians, in living a life of humility, in serving other people. That's what we've been looking at over the past few weeks. If you've missed all that, then it's on the website. Feel free to click on it, listen, you can catch up. Even in the verses that come just before the bit we're looking at this week, if you look at verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2, then we see and we hear about Paul's great joy that he finds in being poured out for other people, like expending himself for the good of those Philippians. And he encourages the Philippians to find joy in the same thing, in service and sacrifice. What we're going to see in the bit we're looking at this week, which is going to be verse 19 down to 30 of chapter 2, what we're going to see is we're going to see that for Paul, this idea that you can find joy in partnering with other people, that you can find joy in serving and pouring yourself out for other people, we're going to find that that's not just philosophy for him. It's not just his idea of this is the way the world works. It's not even just theology for him. It's not just a view of God's that is being reflected in. For for Paul, when he talks about joy being found in serving other people, in sacrificing for other people, in partnering with other Christians, this is his lived reality. This is the life he lives. He's not one of those people who stands away from it and says, well, wouldn't life look brilliant if you just did this, this, and this, but have never actually done it? No, Paul does it. He lives it. And in these verses, we're going to get a little insight into what this looks like for Paul. What does this kind of partnership look like for Paul? What does it look like for him to sacrifice for others? What does it look like for him to serve others? What does it look like 
for a life where Christians love each other, care for each other, serve each other, sacrifice for each other with humility. What's that going to look like? So, let's read it together. Philippians 2, verse 19, down to verse 30, page 1179, if you've got one of the Bibles that's knocking around. Let me read it, and I just want to pull out a few things from it. I, that's Paul, the guy who's writing this letter, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honour people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life, to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. You see, in this section, you get this little insight into what does life look like? What do the relationships between Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and the Philippian church, what does that look like? And and as we get to see a little bit of it, what I'm hoping that we'll be able to do here this afternoon, what I'm hoping that you'll be able to do, is to just put a bit of flesh on the bones of what does it actually mean to live a life of partnership, of sacrificial service, of humility. What does that actually look like as we see what it looked like for these guys? The first thing I want to draw your attention to is the way Paul talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus in this section. In this section, we see Paul's deep affection for Timothy. You'll, you'll, have, you'll have picked it up, hopefully, as I was just reading it. He describes him in glowing terms. He says, there's no one else like Timothy. Imagine if someone said that about you. I mean, hopefully in a good way. Uh, that there's no one else like you. There's no one else like Timothy, Paul says. He describes Timothy's selfless devotion to Christ. He describes the relationship between Paul and Timothy as like the relationship between a father and a son in the closest possible terms. He's not like, oh, Timothy. He's not like, oh, he's just my great mate. Not even that. That would be nice. But he's like a son to me. That's how close they are. Paul's praise for Timothy is pretty unreserved. And we see a a very similar thing with the way Paul talks about Epaphroditus as well, whom he describes as his brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier. These are terms of closeness, of affection. These are terms of praise for those people, praising the way that they have lived their lives, the way that they have been there for Paul. And as I was thinking about this 
uh, over the last week, I was, it, was just, it was just occurring to me that as Paul is writing this, Timothy's there with him. And so is Epaphroditus. In fact, at the start, when we're told who this is from, we're told it's from Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. So you can imagine Timothy, you know, as, as Paul's writing this bit, slightly squirming as like Paul is writing these glowing praise of him and he's sat there like, are you, are you sure, Paul? Are you sure this is what you want to say? And, and, uh, and you can even imagine for Epaphroditus, so Epaphroditus is going to take this letter to the church in Philippi and then he's going to be there, like you are here potentially, on a Sunday and they're going to open up this letter and they're going to be reading it. And you can imagine when it gets to the bit where Paul's describing how great Epaphroditus is, you can imagine Epaphroditus just going a little bit red. <laughs> you know, just a little bit embarrassing, isn't it? Isn't that like when someone starts speaking like this about you? We've had a great example of that with Fran already today. Um, you know, we, 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 it's hard when people put us on the spot and when you're there and we're saying nice things about you. I mean, I don't know what you like when someone's complimenting you. How do you find that? Or, or even worse, when they're saying nice things about you to someone else and you're just there. <laughs> like, it just, it, it makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. Here's just what I want to suggest. And, you know, by, by all means, go away, think about it. Just because we as Christians are called to love God above all else, which we are, and just because we seek to honour God, which we should do, and just because we seek to praise God, just because we see God as the ultimate source of all good things, that doesn't mean that we should ignore or overlook the people that God's put around us. In verse 29, Paul is going to call the Philippians, and he's going to say, this is what you should do. You should honour people like Timothy. You should honour people like Epaphroditus. And so I, I just wonder if we need to hear that same encouragement. I know it's not very British. And it's definitely not something that I find easy. But I think it is the right response. Aren't, aren't you grateful for the people that God has put into your life. The people that God has put next to you to serve you and to encourage you, to build you up. Those people who care for you. Aren't you thankful for the joy and support and security that you find in faithful friends? Well, if you are, then maybe sometimes you should show that. Maybe sometimes you should say it. Maybe you need to hear what Paul says to these Philippians and you need to think, maybe I just need to honour those people a little bit more. Those people who God has put around me and who serve me with humility, with sacrificial love. And you might find that in communicating some of the joy you find in other people, in communicating some of the ways you are thankful for the ways the people around you love and care and support you, you might find that their joy increases a bit and that your joy increases a bit. You might find yourself a bit more joyful 
if you start doing some of this. So that's the first thing I want us to notice. I want us to notice that when Paul talks about partnership and about this is the way that we should live, when he sees it, he talks about it and he compliments it and he honours those who live it out. The next thing I, I just want us to know is the generosity exhibited by everyone within this. Timothy, as we already said, is like a son to Paul. And yet what does Paul want to do? He wants to send Timothy away from him to the Philippians so that the Philippians can be encouraged and so that he can hear how the Philippians are getting on. Epaphroditus has been sent to Paul to support him through his time while he's under arrest. And yet what does Paul do? He sends him back to the Philippians. It's like that classic thing, isn't it, where, you know, two people are at the door and everyone's like, after you. No, after you. It's like, we're going to send you a paradise. Well, I'm going to send him back then. Like, you know, it's that kind of thing. Like, they're both desperate to serve and love and support the other person. He, Paul knows that they're anxious about Epaphroditus because they've heard he was ill. And so Paul wants to send Epaphroditus back to them so that they can see him again and be glad. That's what he says. That's what, and, and it all started because the Philippians' heart towards Paul was, well, how do we love and support him? That's what that phrase at the end means where he talks about um, Epaphroditus, he risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. The Philippians were hundreds of miles away from Paul. And so there were certain things that they could do for Paul hundreds of miles away. They could pray for him. They could carry on the work that he'd started. But there's some stuff that they couldn't do hundreds of miles away. They couldn't talk with Paul. They couldn't send him money without it getting there. They couldn't meet his physical needs. And so what did they do? Well, they did everything that they can from afar. So while I'm away from you, I can pray for you and I can... They did all that. And then they said, hey, but let's also send someone. Let's send someone who can sit in the cell next to Paul. Let's send someone who can physically take a gift to him. Let's send someone who can physically meet his needs and care for him. Now, as we're thinking about what it might look like to live these kind of relationships with other people, I just think there's something in that that is worth thinking about. I, I don't want to make a big thing of it, but just something. There's some things we can do from afar. We can do remotely with people. We can send messages, we can pray for people, we can send them money, we can proclaim the gospel and push on with the same things that they care about. But there's some things that if you're going to do, you just have to be there. You can't do them from afar. Sometimes you just need to sit with someone as they grieve. Sometimes you have to be with someone in the nitty-gritty of life as they battle to resist a certain sin in their life. Sometimes we just need to be with people to better proclaim the gospel with them. There's some comfort, there's some encouragement, there's some work that can't be done from a distance and we need to be physically there. And that's, that's what the Philippians recognised. They said, there's this stuff that we can do. We can all do, and we're all going to do that. But we're also going to send Epaphrodite so that he can do that stuff that you can only do if you're there. But the general point I want us to see here is how this kind of love 
ultimately looks like selfless generosity. It looks like sending Epaphroditus. So for the Philippian church, it looks like them going, hey, we've got this great guy, Epaphroditus. He's so encouraging. He's such a blessing to us. Oh man, we love having him in our church. We wish we had a hundred Epaphrodituses in our church. But they didn't, they had one. And what did they do? They sent him away. They sent him to Paul because they loved Paul and they wanted to bless him. It means it looks like sending Epaphroditus back even though you're in prison and the support and comfort he has given you has been invaluable. It means sending him back to the Philippians because you love the Philippian church and you hear that they're worried about him. It looks like longing to send Timothy, even though he is irreplaceable to you. There's no one else like him. And yet I want to send him away because you know what an encouragement he would be to the Philippians. Now, now of course, don't, don't hear me wrong. This isn't giving everything away. Okay, this isn't go, regardless of what you need, regardless of what's going on in your life. This isn't just like, hey, let's just give everything away regardless of it. Because we know that Paul in this section even says, I want to send Timothy, but because of what's going on right now here with me, I just can't at the moment. But I'm going to in the future. So it's not, it's not oh, well, let's just give everything away. Give all our money away. Give all our people away. Who cares? We don't really need anything. It's not that. But what it is, is the heart which says, hey, I'm looking for any way that I can bless these people because I love them. It's, it's that heart that matters. Each of Paul and the Philippian church and Timothy and Epaphroditus, each of their hearts is for the other people. They're looking for ways to get alongside, to encourage each other. They're desperate to help and serve and crucially to bring comfort. Or, to pick some of the language, to make the other party glad. You, you can almost imagine them. You can imagine the Philippian church sitting around and them going, yeah, but just imagine. Imagine how comforted Paul will be if one of us just goes to be with him. You can imagine them coming up with the idea, what if one of us went? What if we didn't just pray for him? We didn't, what if one of us actually went? And then they talk about it and they get excited thinking about the comfort and help they'll be able to bring to Paul if one of them goes. And that idea turns into a plan which turns into action. You can imagine it. You can imagine Paul sitting in his cell thinks, wouldn't it be great if I could send Timothy to those Philippians? Oh man, they'd love, they'd love that. They'd be so encouraged by him. They'd be so built up by him. Oh, if I ever get the chance to send Timothy to them, I'm going to send him. Because he loves the Philippians and he's excited about what that might be for them. You can imagine the scene when Epaphroditus returns to the Philippians fully healed. Imagine how glad they'll be. You've got, you've got Paul sat in his prison cell thinking, I want to keep Epaphroditus. But then he just pictures in his mind that scene when the Philippian church see Epaphroditus and see that he's healed. And he thinks, man, that's going to bring them such joy. Yeah, let's send him back. You see, their heart is consumed for the other people. It's thinking, oh, how great will that be for the Philippian church? How great will that be for Paul? So I guess here, here's the question, uh, and I, you can, only you can answer this, but here's the question, are you like that? Is, that? is that kind of where your heart's at? Are you looking for ways to get alongside other people or to do things which make them glad, which support them, which help them in their Christian lives? Or are you trying to keep your head down, hoping someone else will do it? Like, what are you like? 
Are you looking for every opportunity to do this? Are you like the everyone else Paul describes as, uh, wherever it is in verse something, somewhere or the 21, as looking out only for their own interests? Is that you? Are you one of those everyone else just looks out for your own interests? Or are you like Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and these Philippian Christians, excited at all the opportunities you might have to serve Christ as you love those around you? Like, where's your heart at in that? What does deep gospel partnership, the kind of gospel partnership we talked about a few weeks ago that brings that joy that Paul describes here? What does it look like? Well, I want to suggest a few things from what we've seen so far. It looks like enjoying and honouring the people God has put around us. And it looks like searching for opportunities to serve and encourage each other. That's what it looks like. That's, what it, that's, that's the practical outworking of this. It's not just words for Paul. It's not just an idea. When he talks about partnership in the gospel, he lives it out with Timothy and Epaphroditus and these Philippian Christians. But we mustn't be unrealistic about what this will look like because it will also look like times of hardship and deep sorrow. You see, we get a little insight into this and into what it actually looked like for Epaphroditus in verses 25 to 27. If you have a Bible, just cast your eyes down there. The Philippians have sent Epaphroditus to care, to take care of Paul's needs. But Epaphroditus has become sick, and in fact, he's become so unwell that he's almost died. It's easy as I talk about this to imagine that the relationship between Paul and the Philippians was full of people just constantly smiling and laughing. Oh, you know, we imagine the scenes where they meet up again and everyone's happy. Uh, Imagine scenes of joy and laughter and relief. But amongst those scenes, which I think we can imagine from this, we catch a glimpse of some other scenes. Of Epaphroditus on death's door, feeling terrible, not sure if he's going to recover of Paul by Epaphroditus praying for his healing, aware of the sorrow that Epaphroditus' death would bring, not just to him, but also to the Philippian church. You catch a glimpse of a scene of a messenger coming to the Philippians and telling them that Epaphroditus is ill and they don't know if he's going to make it. You catch a glimpse of sleepless nights filled with worry, as they wait some kind of update. That is the reality of deep relationships with other people. Real joy with the potential for a sorrow so deep that nothing can quite compare. Where there is deep love, there is the potential for painful loss. And to take Paul's language for sorrow upon sorrow. Where there is joy-filled concern, there is also the potential for distress and anxiety. Where you pour yourself out for someone else, there is the very real risk that that doesn't go as planned, that that service comes with a cost that you'd never imagined, with suffering that you'd never thought would come your way. That's relationships with people, isn't it? We should look to honour and enjoy the people God has put in our lives. We should seek to pour ourselves out for them. 
But we need to be aware that if that's what we choose, it comes with deep sorrows. It comes with real pain. It comes with significant risks. What, what does Paul find here? Well, Paul finds deep joy in other people. He finds joy in honouring those that, they lo- that he loves, in looking to serve others, not himself. Even in the midst of the inevitable anxiety and sorrow which building deep relationships with other people inevitably brings, Paul finds joy. But as I was thinking about this, I'm going to just start trying to pull this together now. As I was thinking about this over the week, it struck me, you probably didn't need me here today to convince you that that some of the deepest joys in your life are found in loving other people and being loved by them. You probably didn't need me to convince you of that. Because you know it to be true. You already know it. You look over your life and you know that the joys you really treasure are those joys which come from meeting up with old friends, from building a loving marriage, from partnering with guys at church, from pouring yourself out with people you love. If I was to do a survey of this room... If I was to go around this room and ask everybody, where do you think you find the deepest joys? I reckon, I, I reckon whatever you believe here today, whether you're a Christian or not, well, whatever your background, I reckon the vast majority of you would have very high on that list, if not at the top, other people, loving relationships. You know it. You don't need me to convince you that that's where you find joy in your life. Just look back at your life. Look at the places you found joy and tell me it's not there. And the question that leaves me with is, therefore, why do we so rarely live as if this is what we actually believe? If we think joy is found in deep relationships, why do we spend so little time building them? Why do we tend to withdraw from people, nervous to get too close? Why do we resist loving others sacrificially and instead try to cling on to what we've got? Why do we act as if joy is found in other things, in hobbies or computer games or TV or laziness or work or money. Like, why do, we, why do we think that? We say joy is found in loving relationships, the kind we see here between Paul and Timothy and Epaphrodites and these Philippian Christians. But in reality, we put no time into building those relationships. Instead, we prioritize things which we know do not have the same potential to bring us joy. Why is that? If we all think this, then why aren't we all just pushing into this as hard as we can? I've been thinking a lot about joy over the past month because it's been at the heart of what we've been seeing in Philippians as a church. And I've spent so much of this month just thinking about joy, thinking about joy in my life, thinking about where, where, how do I experience joy, what does that look like? And as I've been thinking about it, I, I've just kept thinking about, I don't know how to pronounce her name, but Marie Kondo, is that what she's called? Like, uh, I think something like that. Marie Kondo. Now, some people are saying, who is that? That is basically where I'm at. I know almost nothing about her. My guess is that if you have heard of her, you know one thing about her probably, because that's all I know. This is, this is all I know about her. Marie Kondo is a, a Japanese, like, motivational speaker, author, um, and, and she 
she ra- she's written books, I think she's written four of them, on how to organise your life. So if you're sat here today thinking, I need to organise my life, she is, this is her job. She, she tells you how to organise your life. Uh, and she has one principle that, th- this is all anyone knows about Marie Kondo, because I, I don't believe anyone's ever read anything she's written. Oh, well done, Cathy. Um, Cathy has. So you could also just talk to Cathy about how to organise your life. Um, but here's, here's, what, here's what you know about her. Her principle is... You look at your life and you ask one question of it, does it spark joy? And if it doesn't, you get rid of it. Like, this is her principle for organising her life. Now, now she does it a lot about, like, stuff. So she will, uh, she will advocate that you look through your wardrobe, so look through all your clothes, lay them all out, and ask the question of each item of clothing, does this spark joy? And if it doesn't, you get rid of it. Okay, it's gone. So as you can see, I get deep joy out of these black jeans and this blue hoodie. Uh, These these spark sufficient joy in my life for me to keep hold of those. Now, now, I'm not not sure it actually works. Uh, It it maybe works for like incredibly privileged people. But other than that, I'm not sure it actually works. But it has got me thinking a lot about... If I was to apply that principle to my life, like where would I end up? As I look at my life, I am away, aware that there are many things I pursue which actually, when I step back and look at it, I'm not sure actually bring me joy. So let's give some examples. Clicking on my iPad often feels very tempting. And yet, I'm not sure it contributes much joy to my life. My pursuit of money or security or comfort, they feel incredibly appealing, and they feel very important, and yet, often, they don't really seem to deliver much joy. If there's one thing I've been challenged about throughout this series, it's how easy I find it to spend my time on things which bring me no joy. And it got me wondering, how much more joyful would my life be if I simply got rid of those things which don't bring me joy and instead pursued the things which Paul has said throughout this letter will bring joy? Like, would I genuinely live a more joyful life if, I said, I'm going to go into and push into these things that Paul says bring joy. And maybe, maybe that, that truth for me explains a little bit of why, despite knowing our deepest joys come from loving relationships, we again and again fail to prioritise them. Maybe this is just the latest example of how we fill our lives with easy things or tempting things which don't bring joy, rather than those things which are undoubtedly more demanding and yet bring deep joy. I know that's true of my life. I know it's true every day of my life that there are things I do because they are easier to do that bring no joy or minimal joy, rather than the things that I know ultimately bring me joy. And so I wonder if when all is said and done, the choice is actually quite straightforward. You can have selfishness or you can have joy 
You can't have both. Let me pray for us.